You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Thanks for uh, coming in on a grey uh, Monday morning in London. Uh, so welcome everyone. <laughs> welcome everyone also joining uh, online. Uh, just a quick reminder for those joining online, I've got my little tablet here, so any questions you have in addition to those that may be coming up from the audience here in London, if you've got questions you want to pose to the panel members, then uh, get writing and they'll pop up um, on my tablet. Um, so before I introduce myself and the other panel members here in London and joining online, I guess we should do a couple of quick um, housekeeping things. You've all come in through the main entrance. Um, so if the fire alarm uh, goes off, that's, that's the, the best way of getting out. But there's also another exit um, just out here and over there to your left. Um, so uh, that's if uh, someone hits the, hits the panic button, but that's not going to happen. So let me um, introduce everyone first. So my name's uh, Roger Kalo. I'm a senior uh, research fellow at ODI, uh, currently on, on, on leave in, in Shanghai, but back especially to chair this fantastic event. Um, on my left, let's do the ODI bits first. We have uh, Dr. Eva Ludi, uh, who joins me from the uh, Water Policy Program here at ODI, and Eva's now um, head of program. Um, immediately on my right, we're doing the London bits first. We have uh, Oliver Cumming from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I'll introduce these folk in a, in a bit more detail when their presentations or their reflections coming up actually come up, but we're just doing this quickly. On my right, on my far right, Tom Slaymaker from uh, UNICEF um, in New York. And then joining online and a warm welcome to uh, Dr. Kalist uh, Tindim Yugaya, Commissioner for Water Resources and Planning and Regulation, Ministry of Water and Environment in Uganda. And also joining from uh, Lusaka, I think we have Chilufia Chileshi, Regional Advocacy Manager for WaterAid. So quite a big panel today, so we need to be clippy as we, as we go along and keep everyone on time, but I, I don't know why I'm telling myself as chair as what I need to do, but that's what I'm telling myself and the other panel members. So the subject for today's um, event, um, you know, why have we uh, chosen to major on equity? in WASH or achieving equality in, in water and sanitation. I suppose the main reason for that, and one that many here joining online will be familiar with, is that despite the um, successes of the MDG, the Millennium Development Goal period, um, where, of course, the international community hit the, hit the water target but missed the sanitation one by a, by a long way, uh, so despite the successes in terms of getting galvanizing political commitment and increasing the numbers of people uh, um, uh, with access to, 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 to improved services, we have these glaring inequalities 
that remain. Inequalities through, through geography, different areas, uh, rural, urban, hard to reach, easier to reach. Inequalities via uh, group characteristics, so ethnicity, for example, and inequalities via individual characteristics like um, gender and age. So the SDGs uh, marked a much more ambitious attempt, um, I think, to, to, to achieve universality. And that equity or, or universality uh, uh, rubric runs throughout um, um, the, 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 the goals of the SDGs, all 17 of them and 169 targets. That's a, that's a lot. So today we're going to be talking mainly about goal six, ensuring availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all, the universality bit, by 2030. And, um, you know, that, 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 that's a much more ambitious target with implications for financing, ways of doing business, prioritization, and so on and so forth. So we're going to be talking about some of these um, issues today, and we've got a, a, a very good panel, I think, for doing it. So without further ado, um, let's turn to our first uh, speaker. So we've got two speakers and three more of, a, more of a discussant role. And just to remind you all, we'll open things up to, to, to discussion after we've heard from the speakers and the, and the discussants. And that reminder includes those people joining online. OK. So first, on my right, we have Tom Slaymaker joining, as I said, from UNICEF in New York. Uh, now sh shuttling backwards and forwards, I think, between the UK and, uh, uh, and New York. So Tom is uh, familiar to some of you I know because he used to work here in uh, uh, WaterAid, here in WaterAid, he used to work over there in WaterAid, he used to work here at ODI, in fact. Tom is a senior statistics and monitoring specialist in the data and analytics section at UNICEF in New York. Uh, so almost 20 years' experience working on water and sanitation, mainly Africa and Asia, and currently co-leading the WHO UNICEF JMP, Joint Monitoring Program, that uh, some of us are familiar with on water supply, sanitation and hygiene. So Tom's going to kick us off with a, with a quick overview. Over to you, Tom. Okay, thank you, Roger, and thanks for the introduction. Um, so. I work at UNICEF, and uh, together with WHO, we're responsible for, for global monitoring of progress on, on drinking water, sanitation, and hygiene. Um, I also uh, co-edited uh, a book with uh, Ollie Cumming um, on uh, equality in water and sanitation services. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give an overview of uh, the extent to which uh, the global monitoring framework is, is tackling inequalities, uh, and to highlight some of the uh, issues that emerged uh, from from that book. So as I think you know, the, the 2030 agenda uh, for sustainable development is extremely ambitious. Uh, 17 goals, 169 targets, and now around 232 global indicators. And the important thing I think to, to recognize when we look at this agenda is just how uh, ambitious it is, um, how complicated it is, and the, ex the extent to which these different objectives um, uh, relate to each other. So whether you're interested in 
um, water and sanitation, or whether you're interested in education, or health, or education, or nutrition. Um, each of these goals and targets are interrelated. And uh, a big part of this agenda is trying to uh, promote a more uh, integrated approach to development, bringing together the social and the economic aspects with the environmental targets. But when it comes to drinking water, sanitation, and hygiene, there was a, a fairly strong consensus going into uh, the formulation of this agenda around the goals for the sector. Uh, one was, uh, firstly, to eliminate open defecation. Um, another was to try and achieve universal access to at least a basic level of service. And the third was to progressively improve the, the quality of, of services that people are getting. And you see that reflected in the, in the global targets and also in the global indicators. So I'll just give you a, a quick overview of, of what those are and, and what we are now monitoring. So previously... For the MDGs, we were monitoring the, the population with and without in, an improved drinking water source. But now we're subdividing those categories further. So we still make a distinction between improved and unimproved and also the population uh, using surface water. But if you have an improved source, we now make a distinction between an improved source within 30 minutes and an improved source beyond 30 minutes. If it's within 30 minutes, then that will count as a basic drinking water service. And that's more ambitious than... Um, the old uh, MDG indicator. But at the top of the ladder, you have this new um, indicator, which is reflecting the, the full ambition of the targets, and that is drinking water from an improved source that is located on premises, available when needed, and free from contamination. So three new criteria relating to the quality of services. And this, of course, is, is much more ambitious. So safely managed drinking water is a, is a subset of basic. And as you see... Globally, in 2015, uh, while we had 88, 89% with at least a basic level of service, once you take into account these additional criteria um, for safe management, then it comes down to 71%. We have a similar logic with, with sanitation here. We still have a strong focus on ending open defecation at the bottom of the ladder. Um, and we're making a distinction between use of an improved sanitation facility um, and, uh, which is shared with other households and an improved uh, facility uh, that is private, uh, which will count as a basic service. But we're now going beyond access to a toilet facility and looking at what happens to the excreta. What happens when you flush the toilet? What happens when your septic tank or pit latrine fills up? So a safely managed sanitation service uh, is an improved facility. It's not shared with other households and it's where the excreta are either safely disposed of in situ or they are removed from the household and, and treated off-site. So for our baseline estimates for 2015 for sanitation, you can see 68% with at least a basic level of service, um, but it drops right down to 39% once we take into account uh, the management of excreta. We still have 12% uh, there practicing open defecation. That's 892 million people globally still practicing open defecation. And then for hygiene, um, this is new for the SDG agenda. It wasn't included in the MDGs, but we're looking at hand-washing facilities uh, with soap and water uh, available in the home. Uh, we have uh, the same concept of, of a ladder um, with and without uh, soap and water or no facility at all. But importantly, we can only make these estimates for around 70 countries. And when you look at those 70 countries, you can see what a, what a very wide range we have in terms of coverage. 
And of course, in sub-Saharan Africa, very, very low levels of, of coverage with a basic hand-washing facility. So this was our baseline status uh, going into the SDGs. And it gives you a sense of the scale of the, of the challenge ahead. But on top of that, the 2030 Agenda emphasizes uh, this concept of leave no one behind and requires that these indicators be disaggregated where possible, where relevant, uh, by a whole range of different stratifiers. And we have this concept of, as we progress towards universal access, uh, also reducing uh, the gap between uh, advantaged and disadvantaged groups. Uh, whether that's by age or sex or ethnicity, migratory status, uh, geographic um, location and other characteristics. And I think we've made quite a lot of progress in, in highlighting some of these inequalities. These are examples of inequalities in basic drinking water, sanitation, hygiene and open defecation. And we can zoom in uh, from left to right between the global situation uh, the, the regional coverage and then individual countries. So for drinking water there, you can see that Angola um, is towards the lower end uh, for basic drinking water coverage within sub-Saharan Africa. But if you zoom in further and look at coverage in urban and rural, you can see a big gap. But the biggest gap is between the richest and the poorest. So over 80% of the richest have, have basic water services, uh, less than 20% of the poorest. And a very big range when you look at sub-national regions. We see the exact same pattern for sanitation in Panama. In Panama, the difference between Panama City, 100% coverage with basic sanitation uh, services, um, less than 1% in Guniala, which is an indigenous uh, district in Panama. Bangladesh is famous for uh, getting close to uh, eliminating open defecation, at least if you look at the aggregate figures for the country as a whole. But when you zoom in further uh, between the richest and the poorest and the sub-national regions, you can see that in some parts of Bangladesh, um, cover um, uh, coverage is still only at 80% uh, uh, not practicing uh, open defecation. So there are a number of different dimensions of inequality which we're now trying to take account of. Um, the environmental dimension is, is extremely important, and, and Roger wrote a, a chapter in the book looking at this. Um, emphasizing the importance not just of the, uh, the quantity of water available and the uh, capacity to manage it, uh, but also the quality. And this is particularly uh, important in, in urban areas, rapidly urbanizing areas, uh, where we have enormous pressure on water resources. And that's why we have, under Goal 6, uh, a number of other targets that go beyond drinking water sanitation and hygiene and start to take account of water resources management, ecosystems, uh, wastewater treatment, and so on. Um, there's also a, a very strong focus on, on gender. Um, this is partly addressed uh, through the time uh, taken to collect uh, water from distant sources. And you can see here some recent data from Sierra Leone, where we still have 33% of the population spending um, over three hours collecting water each day. Um, and a further um, third of the population who spend between one and three hours. So a very significant uh, problem. And it's overwhelmingly uh, the women who are responsible for drinking water collection. But there are a number of other uh, aspects um, of inequality uh, which have a very strong um, gendered aspect. Um, we're also increasingly looking at uh, disability. Um, these are some data from a recent assessment we did of schools looking at the proportion of schools which have an improved sanitation facility and the proportion which have one uh, which is accessible for students with limited mobility. 
And you see a huge drop um, in many of these countries between having a facility and having one which is accessible for those with limited mobility. And this is common across the board, whether you're in, in France or you're in Fiji. Another really important aspect of inequality is inequalities beyond the toilet. Um, previously, we've been monitoring uh, the population with and without uh, an improved sanitation facility. Uh, but once we started to take into account those that are using uh, sewered connections and those that are using on-site facilities, we see that globally we have roughly the same proportion using those two different types. And this has fairly profound implications for how we are managing sanitation and managing excreta um, and the focus of efforts in different parts of the world. So if you look at the different regions, you can see in sub-Saharan Africa uh, the vast majority using on-site uh, sanitation systems. Um, if you come through to North America and Europe, then uh, the majority using sewered connections. Um, so this has implications for financing, but also implications for um, uh, cross-subsidies and uh, the way in which we imagine um, uh, different population groups um, being served in future. So as we progress towards these targets, we can start to benchmark countries and see uh, their relative rates of progress. If you look um, along the bottom here, you see um, coverage of basic sanitation services. And up the side, it's the um, annual percentage point change per year over the last 15 years. And so in order to achieve universal access by 2030, uh, depending on your coverage, you will need uh, a different uh, rate of, of progress. And so uh, the 14 countries in the green are, are on track. Uh, they either have a high level of coverage or um, a high rate of change, or both. Um, those in, in yellow are currently progressing too slowly, and some in orange, which are below the line, are actually regressing for a number of reasons. Um, uh, in many cases, uh, services are not keeping up with population growth, particularly in urban areas. So a number of different ways of, of thinking about inequalities and um, very significant uh, implications for the way in which we uh, design uh, policies and programs to address them. But one uh, common theme uh, throughout uh, the discussion that we had uh, around the book and the discussion that is going on in terms of implementation is the extent to which these inequalities are interlocking and overlapping. And so those disadvantaged groups are very often not only disadvantaged when it comes to water and sanitation, but also in terms of healthcare, in terms of nutrition, in terms of education. And so understanding how we can identify and target those groups, but also how the investments in one area are essential for progress in other areas of the 2030 agenda, I think, is um, a common theme uh, which is gonna, uh, keep, we're going to keep coming back to in the discussion on the panel. So, Roger, I think I'll leave it there with that initial overview. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, uh, Tom. That's a great uh, start. Um, uh, just to pick up on your last point, the interlocking in inequalities, I, I think uh, that was uh, something you, were, you wrote about, in fact, in the, in the book, right? Um, and also, you know, raising the issue of water quality, having just, you know, come from uh, China, uh, or, uh, you know, um, a, a lot is written about uh, China in terms of water scarcity, particularly in the north, a country that's you know, achieved fantastic things in terms of basic services, but it's water quality, actually, which is the big, knotty problem for government. Once you've got a problem, it's, you know, it's quite difficult to do something about it in terms of remediation. Um, so, uh, many thanks, Tom. Uh, 
pushing on, um, I'm going to bring in uh, our, you're, you're called guest one on my screen here, Callist. Uh, but um, thank you very much for joining. Let me give you a, a quick um, introduction for the benefit of the people here in London and others joining online. So a reminder, Callist is Commissioner for Water Resources Planning and Regulation, Ministry of Water and Environment in Uganda, in Uganda a job um, he's had there since 2007. So he's responsible for planning, allocating and regulating water resources. Um, so Kalist started his professional career in 1919, became head of the groundwater section in 1999, responsible for all groundwater management activities in Uganda and certainly in sub-Saharan Africa we know that it is groundwater development and management which really underpins, is going to underpin um, uh, attainment of, 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 of that drinking water goal, just to pick that one out. So, Kalist, um, over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, good morning, everybody. Greetings from Uganda. It is afternoon now. I hope uh, the weather is good right there. I will be giving Uganda's perspective as requested. Of course, for Uganda, we do recognize that the equity agenda is very important for our country, like it is for many other countries. We do note that access to water, sanitation, and hygiene services are key in poverty reduction, economic growth, and livelihood improvement. And we also, as a country, do recognize that when we talk about water, water supports different socioeconomic activities and when we are looking at for example water supply we need to look at it within the whole spectrum of uh, other uses as a country we are currently trying to move from uh, our status as a, a low income country to a middle income status and water is becoming very very important in this agenda and we are trying to see how best we can have access to water improved. We have had challenges in the, the sense that in some areas the water is not available, but in some areas it is too much and it causes problems. So we are trying to see how we manage this uh, variability of water resources so that we can take advantage of it. We have for a great extent depended on point sources of water, for example, uh, boreholes and pumped boreholes springs, shallow wells, supply water to our people. But because of these kind of pumping technologies or delivery technologies, sometimes it becomes difficult to reach certain groups of communities. If you are very far from a borehole, then obviously you have to walk for a long distance. If maybe a spring is not available, then you don't access water. So as a country, we are trying to improve our water supply coverage by changing from hand-pumped boreholes to solar-pumped boreholes. And we do believe that through that we'll be able to reach people where they are rather than actually people walking for a long distance. But also we are trying to use uh, these schemes not only to supply water for drinking, but also to supply water for other purposes. So as a country, we are moving into multi-purpose uses of water. Right now, when we develop a scheme for domestic water supply, we want this water to be used for other activities like micro-irrigation, 
so that people can get livelihood and be able to get the money actually to pay for the water. And we also do believe that even if you provide safe drinking water to somebody who is poor, you have actually not helped him much. So we want to improve access to safe drinking water while also improving people's livelihoods and incomes so that they are able to develop holistically. Microirrigation in the country is being given a lot of attention and we do believe that if people don't have access to food, then obviously we shall not be talking about holistic development. Again, we are looking at water coming into support. And I think as Tom has highlighted, when we are looking at the targets we are trying to achieve under SDG 6, many of the things we do will have implications for other goals. So again, we need to recognize that, that Whatever we do in water, because water supports main activities, as we know, and you cannot really focus on goal number six without looking at the broader picture, you know, how delivery under goal six will impact on other goals. Within this framework, as a country, we have recognized that we cannot continue looking at provision of wash services without looking at the overall water resources management framework, and indeed general environmental management. We have developed a policy as a country that all water infrastructure projects have to be implemented within the framework of a catchment. We do recognize that in many areas, schemes are put in place, but the water is not available after some time. So we want to put in place infrastructure, but we protect the catchment so that the water continues to flow in adequate quantity and quality. In Uganda, we have this saying that you cannot continue milking a cow if you don't feed it. So we do believe that, again, you cannot continue pumping water or delivering water if you don't look at where the water is coming from. Within that framework, we have actually developed what we call water source protection guidelines, which require that every water infrastructure project, as a requirement, has put up 3% of its budget to protect the catchment. It's now a licensing requirement, it's a legal requirement. When you design a water supply project, you have to have a budget for water source protection. And it has been agreed as a country, and there's nobody who is actually questioning that. But we, of course, need to remember that whatever we've been doing, we have actually been having inequalities. As a country, access to safe drinking water right now is about 70% and access sanitation services, sanitation services is about 79%. Now, we note that although we're having this broad picture for the country, there are many, many inequalities. We're having some districts which have as low as 30% water supply coverage, others having as high as 99%. For sanitation, the same situation. Some even go as low as 20%. So, Again, when we report progress and we ramp that progress, we have to segregate this data so that we can know that we have inequalities across the country. We are even also having inequalities even within the district. As a result, we have been directed by our head of state that he will want us to actually target villages so that we ensure that every village has a safe drinking water source. So right now, within our monitoring framework, we are monitoring how many villages, the percentage of the villages in the country that have access to safe 
drinking water and sanitation services. Through that, we are trying to address this inequality so that you don't just go in a district and you think the coverage in, in the district represents everybody. We want now to be looking at the villages and see what is the percentage of the villages. And we do believe that the village brings the services closer to the people. Uganda was one of the countries that, uh, uh, one of the six countries actually that piloted SDG 6 indicator methodology. And within that arrangement, we're privileged to really analyze all the different targets and indicators. And when we completed the piloting exercise, we, we decided to update our sector performance measurement framework. So we have now added in the SDGs in our sector performance measurement framework and specifically, we are trying to make sure that if the data we collect as we measure progress, it is desegregated so that we see how we are providing services according to gender, for example, according to region, according to say, disabilities and all of that. So we are doing that in that regard, and we are putting in place a baseline. We expect that by mid next year, we shall have a baseline, and we'll be reporting on this in September 2019, when we normally produce our annual sector performance reports. So we are on track. Everybody is convinced that we cannot just continue uh, looking on without addressing the, the, the inequalities. We are moving on, but the challenge, of course, is enormous. As we collect the data, some situation, the data is not available, but also the effort we need to put in to collect this data is very big. But we are committed as a country to move forward. Within the country, we have also tried to uh, address these issues within our national water policies. So our national water policy is undergoing review. We are actually finalizing it by January, and we have made a provision to take into consideration the human rights to water, and also ensuring that the country looks at water holistically so that you can provide these services in a holistic manner. This policy, uh, uh, as I mentioned, will be approved by our cabinet uh, probably by February, and we feel that it will have addressed all the issues related to water and sanitation services. Within the framework of water resources management, I think provision of water supply and sanitation services has have great implication for water resources management. Obviously, you don't provide water unless it is available. So there are some situations where we don't have the water, and so providing this water becomes a challenge of how to move water from areas where it is in plenty, areas where it is uh, uh, limited. We also have to ensure that there is rational allocation so that one user doesn't take it all. We have been having, for example, hydropower developers wanting to take all the water, or even irrigators wanting to take uh, water without considering the needs for uh, the, the drinking. And our national water policy is very clear that drinking water receives first priority. So within the framework of water resources management, we are putting in place a rigorous water allocation framework so that we provide water rationally, but also bearing in mind the need for sustainability. We are also, of course, as I mentioned, One minute. we have also... We have also, as I mentioned, we have also ensure, we are ensuring that we implement the, pro, the, the, the programs within the framework of catchment, and within this framework, stakeholders' engagement is very key. 
We bring the stakeholders together, the private sector, the government agency, the civil society, the religious institution, the cultural institutions, the academia, to work together, plan on how they are going to use this water. And through that, we do believe that the issues of inequality will be addressed because we are bringing all these various stakeholders to come on the table and plan on how this water can be used for the benefit of everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Kellis. That's a, that's a great country perspective and um, uh, you know lots of lots of things um, in there you know uh, in terms of the, 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 the inequality challenge the big inequality uh, inequalities you spoke about in, in Uganda even within quite quite small areas uh, catchment protection water resources management linking up with micro um, irrigation and so on and so forth so um, Lots of things in there. Thank you very much. Uh, we're now going to move on, um, I think, to, uh, to the discussants. Um, so um, let me introduce uh, Chilufya. Chilufya, are you, are you there? Can you hear me well? Yes, I am. Let me just introduce you first, just to remind, uh, just to remind uh, people. So Chilufya is uh, Regional Advocacy Manager for Water Aid in Southern Africa. Delighted uh, she could join today because she's going to rush off to a flight straight after. Um, she has over 12 years um, experience leading civil society, pro-poor policy analysis and advocacy and currently coordinating water aids engagements with uh, AMCAO, African Minister's Council on Water and a key role in um, supporting an improved focus within water aid country programming on reducing inequalities. So, um, Chilufia, you've heard uh, two presentations um, so far. Um, what do you make of them? What would you, what would you like to add or comment on? Great, right, thank you very much. I think the first thing to say is uh, congratulations to all the contributors to this book. It's uh, quite a good effort, uh, compiling all of the, the experiences from various angles. And listening to the, to the two speak, I think that several things stand out for me. The first is um, reflecting on Kalis's input, uh, as well as Tom's, is that we definitely need a holistic view to the problems that face us now in ensuring that everyone has access to water and sanitation. And so we have a big challenge ahead to meet the, the SDG target. So this holistic view, uh, beginning with policy, financing, catchment protection, and the role of people in ensuring that that access can be assured is a key one. And that's what I'm hearing uh, from the discussants. And I like those perspectives very much. Uh, what I would add is I think uh, most of our countries need to do a little bit more in characterizing the problems um, as well as understanding what are the major drivers of inequality, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. The, the big problems we see, and Kalis referred a little bit to this, and, and as well as Tom, is uh, sometimes um, really blanket responses to the problem. So if you speak about groundwater contamination, and if I use the example of Zambia where I'm currently sitting, in Lusaka, the groundwater is being heavily contaminated by fecal waste because of the large number of urban slums, unplanned uh, urban um, um, slums. And then up in the copper belts, a lot of the contamination is because of inorganic 
uh, waste coming from the mines and other activities. So I think that the, the major drivers of inequalities in both of those locations need to be understood uh, by our countries and an inv investment in that diagnostic in every case is quite essential. So I like what I'm hearing from Uganda and that focus at the local level going below the district and not taking the statistics of one district as representing uh, the situation in the entire district, but looking down at the village level and in some cases necessary to understand what's happening at the household level. Uh, I think that there, there are also big issues around ensuring that access to water and sanitation becomes a central part of planning, budgeting and reviews in, the, in our countries. Uh, with a focus on uh, the key groups of people that are marginalized, that don't have access, that are not being reached. Um, so there, there have been efforts in most of our countries to do joint sector reviews and other such processes, but we have missed the, uh, the, the opportunity very often to focus in on what are the particular needs of uh, the elderly, of women, of urban poor and rural, uh, because we are we are really constantly trying to understand why are we lagging behind? How do we catch up? How do we now uh, uh, get up to the SDGs? Which is an important aspect, but I think we need to now be going a little bit further and saying who exactly is marginalized in each of our countries. So this question of context, but also. Uh, why are they marginalized? Why are they not accessing water to the standard and quality that they should? And what should we be doing? Um, so really interesting to see the statistics there that only 14 countries seem to be in the green. That means that the rest of our countries need to do a lot more in, in ensuring that planning budgets and reviews pay greater attention to the questions of inequality in access to sanitation as well as water. What that tells me um, is the need for greater decentralized governance. Um, uh, and I think Uganda gave, Kalist uh, gave some good examples from Uganda where they are going beyond the district statistics and understanding what's happening below. But that means tailoring responses as well uh, to the sub-district level uh, capacitating those structures that operate at that level to respond uh, and have the, the skills to um, to assess uh, issues such as water quality because those are some of the ones that we have uh, significant problems with uh, because the capacity simply doesn't exist in most of the countries. Um, and I, I think when we look at the JMP statistics shared earlier, um, it also reminds me that there is a great need to improve the quality of data uh, at the country level and also the sub-district level. So we have particular challenges regards to things like household water storage uh, and treatment. And we have found, for instance, in Southern Africa, where we have, uh, where I'm, I'm uh, a lot more familiar, that. Um, women in particular, or let's say households, will collect water from a, a water source and it will be safe at source, but when it reaches the household, uh, it is no longer safe because of the handling and all of those uh, issues. So I think that there's a definitely need for a holistic uh, view to the problem and a holistic approach uh, to addressing those challenges. Understanding that water and sanitation go closely together 
as well as um, integrated water resource management, as, as earlier explained, and how we ensure that the choices about who accesses the water are well informed by the people that are usually marginalized. And this requires that we, we think about creating the spaces for participation in decision making around how we ensure uh, that inequality can be tackled and dismantled. So that means having women at the table, people with disabilities, uh, and uh, creating those spaces for them to speak about how we can ensure that they can access and that they are adequately served um, using the, the mechanisms that would be created uh, in this decentralized um, governance structures that I spoke about. So I think I will uh, end there and say that what I, I hear is quite some progressive suggestions and recommendations around how we can improve access, how we can try and tackle inequality in our countries. Uh, but I'm not hearing uh, how we can ensure that governments that don't have the capacity are supported to get there. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Chilufia. Yeah, and that's... Um that's a very weighty question you left us with uh, at, at the end, especially um, you know if we if we want to sort of move up the service ladder to, to to more expensive and more potentially more 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 complicated things when governments are already struggling with basic service provision. Um, I'm going to hand straight over now to uh, Oliver Cumming. Let me give you a, a, a quick intro, Oliver. Um, Assistant Professor of Environmental Health at uh, London School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine. As you heard at the beginning, one of the co-editors of, uh, of this book on uh, achieving equality and access to WASH. Um, so Oliver works on the epidemiology of water and sanitation related diseases, currently working on multiple trials to assess the impact of water and sanitation interventions on childhood enteric infection, undernutrition, and oral vaccine failure in Africa and South Asia. I'm glad I got through that. That's quite good. <coughs> over, over to you. Thank you. <laughs> um, good morning, everyone. It's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here. It's, and it's, a, it's really a great opportunity, I think, for both for Tom and myself and some of the other authors um, that are with us uh, today to have the opportunity to discuss uh, this book with with you all because it 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 is it, a couple of years in the in the in the baking. Um, as Roger said, just to put my cards on the table, I'm I'm a public health researcher, and that obviously brings some some particular biases. So I'm particularly interested in the contribution of research and evidence to the issue of uh, uh, equality, um, and I come at it very much from a public health uh, angle. Um, but what I would say is that equality is really at the heart of, of public health and epidemiology. Uh, you know, since the, the sort of 200 years since really, really uh, here in London with William uh, Farr, the use of public health statistics has always served as a tool to understand uh, inequalities in health outcomes at a population uh, uh, level. Uh, I really just want to make three three points because I think the, the three previous speakers have done a really good job um, in terms of describing describing uh, the book itself from from Tom, but also then rooting uh, some of the issues that the book touches upon uh, in terms of sort of national and subnational uh, uh, issues. Um, the first point that I wanted to flag was uh, something which I really got out of uh, uh, this book and this experience was going a little bit further in understanding the difference between equality and equity. 
Um, and there was, there were, I was surprised. This was something of a controversial issue among the authors in the book. Some people felt very strongly that the book should be entitled uh, Equity, or something along the lines of uh, Achieving Equity. And uh, other people felt very strongly that this book should be about achieving uh, equality. In the end, we settled on uh, equality. And the rationale for that was uh, that I think we achieved a consensus across the authors of the book uh, for was that really uh, equality is the end point and equity is the means by which we arrive at equality. So you all may not agree with that. We might want to revisit, in the, revisit it in the discussion. But that was the, the, the first point um, uh, which I certainly changed my mind because I was one of the people who was pushing actually uh, for using equity because I felt this was a far more sort of progressive uh, uh, term. Uh, the second point I wanted to flag is around uh, uh, the conception and uh, the contribution, at least as I see it, of, of, of this book to, uh, to, to the sector at a policy level and at a practice uh, <laughs> level. And really, really the, book, the book tries to do a few things. The first thing is it tries to combine policy, practice and research perspectives around this really, really important um, uh, topic. So you'll see actually, if you look at the chapters, many of them include both academic authors and authors uh, who might describe themselves as operating in a, in a policy domain or at a practice uh, level. And I think everyone who contributed to the book felt that was really uh, uh, a very positive um, uh, uh, process and caused many people, I think, to change or adapt uh, their ideas. Certainly speaking as a, as a researcher, you know, we often have sort of wonderful ideas but can be somewhat disconnected uh, from policy and practice uh, realities. Uh, in the book, we try to describe where we are today in terms of the platforms and the opportunities uh, for addressing uh, inequality. So obviously the SDGs that Tom has talked about, uh, the right to water and uh, sanitation, and various initiatives at a, at a regional and at a, a national level. The second thing the book tries to do is map out some of the key dimensions of inequality. And we touch on uh, poverty, we touch on environmental uh, 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 insecurity, uh, gender, disability, uh, and, indeed, and indeed others. And then the third thing the book tries to do uh, tentatively is suggest examples of where we have seen progress in addressing inequalities and ways in which we might in the future do better on inequality. So really, uh, uh, together, this presents something of a, I, I hesitate to say, a tool book, but it certainly tries to answer some of those critical questions about, is there really an opportunity here to act? Do we know what we need to be doing? And do we have some idea as to uh, how we can secure progress? I, I, I would really, really echo, though, just to, to, to conclude on this point, the, the previous uh, uh, comments from from Zambia, which I think really apply to this book, that critically the next stage is to take something like this, which is a, a sort of global resource um, based on the global literature. But to take forward this issue, it needs to be grounded or internalized at a national level. Really all of these issues, the opportunities, the, the key drivers of inequality, and what can be done about it are national questions which need to be rooted in national policy. Um, uh, responses. Um, 
And my sort of third and last point is a, is a, is a question, I think, to the audience, uh, which is whether we should approach uh, water, sanitation, hygiene, inequality as uh, a symptom or as a solution. Uh, Tom picked up on this, this, this question about uh, how the, there are multiple inequalities which interlock, they are co-distributed, they co-occur in the same populations. From a, from a public health perspective, we sometimes use uh, this term syndemics to describe the fact that we have multiple co-occurring disease epidemics. Yeah? The same people who are struggling uh, with uh, uh, commu uh, uh, non-communicable disease, with heart disease, uh, with cancers, are in many places the exact same populations who at a different point in their life course are struggling with a very high infectious disease burden. And if we simply try to understand one aspect of that, we will fail <coughs> to address the underlying sort of structure of inequality. Um, so I, just to, to close on that, I, I was in, in, in Senegal uh, last week where we're working with the Ministry of Health to, uh, to design and test uh, a wash uh, package that will be integrated within uh, the national protocol for treatment of severe acute malnutrition. I wanted to give this just as an example of how negatively these, over, these overlapping inequalities uh, 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 can play out. So in, in Senegal, they've uh, enjoyed significant success in putting in place a very strong protocol for addressing severe acute malnutrition. Uh, um, uh, which, particularly in some areas of the country, is, remains a very, uh, a very important problem. Uh, kids who are severe acute malnourished appear at uh, a health facility. They're very quickly identified, and they're very quickly uh, enrolled within uh, a severe acute malnutrition outpatient treatment program, which includes uh, provision of antibiotics, deworming medication, um, uh, uh, zinc, and they're then followed up weekly over, a six, over an eight-week uh, period. And generally about uh, 50 to 60% of kids uh, go on to recover within that, within that period. What we see, however, is that kids who, are, who, who, who live in households with very poor environmental conditions, who have very poor uh, access to water, sanitation, hygiene, are far less likely to respond to that package of treatment for severe acute malnutrition. And that really speaks to me to the, uh, this, this fundamental issue that we cannot simply address single deprivations, such as uh, improving healthcare access or improving uh, access to uh, therapeutic treatment for severe acute malnutrition. We also, at the same time, need to address other inequalities in this example water sanitation, hygiene uh, at, at home. So I think for me, the question I would sort of pose to the WASH sector, which I imagine most of us sort of uh, 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 are affiliated uh, to, is how we do better on ensuring that lockstep, how we do better on ensuring that we move forward on multiple deprivations at the same time, because I think that's only the only way that we're going to see significant differences. Um, and, and just to say finally that I do think the stakes are very high <laughs> Uh, uh, in terms of addressing inequality, and I think I, I came from France uh, yesterday uh, and, and um, uh, was late for my flight because I couldn't get on the plane because of the gilet uh, jaune, 
and then uh, arrive in London. I uh, hear that there was huge demonstrations at the weekend. And I think fundamentally, whether it's uh, uh, here in the UK or in France or in the US, or indeed in, uh, as we've heard, in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, we're really seeing at a political level the cost of not addressing inequalities. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks, Oliver. Uh, so remember that question he he, he posed to you because we'll we'll come back to that. Um, interested in whether you have any reflections. Um, I've also keeping an eye. We've got a couple of questions coming in online. Um, but without further ado, let me go over to my colleague um, here on my left, Dr. Eva Ludi, who currently manages the uh, the water policy program here at ODI and. Uh, you know, covers a wide portfolio of work actually in ODI, not just in the water policy program, but in the climate change arena and uh, uh, environmental degradation, uh, catchment management, the kind of thing that Calist uh, uh, talked about, as well as as well as WASH. So over to you, Eva, for your reflections. Yep, thank you very much, and thanks everyone <laughs> for coming and the previous speakers. That was really really interesting, and I picked up Calist's. Um, mention of the natural resource management as being a core in, in Uganda's um, wash delivery. And I think that is one of, of the sort of overlooked areas very often when, when wash has been planned, that the, the status of the resources on which the systems rely was kind of assumed but not never really um, looked at. And, and I think Roger mentioned as well the difficulty of having information of having data of actually knowing what amounts of water are available both above ground and below ground but not only the quantities of water available above and below ground but increasingly um, the quality of water and what we haven't heard and, and I was quite quite surprised positively surprised I haven't heard the word climate or change so um, I'm not going to dwell on that because I think in terms of wash delivery, whether we are, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to be preoccupied by climate change by 2100 if we are still struggling to meet demand um, in 2018. So what will happen in the future is kind of dwarfed by the questions, how do we serve people currently, um, recognizing in particular the sort of spatial and temporal um, inequalities in distribution of water and I think that's not part of the or it's only part of the explanation of inequality to access but definitely an important part to consider how resources are available when they are available or not available again both above and below ground and sort of going back a bit to research ODI has done recently in collaboration with um, the British Geological Survey and Addis Ababa University in Ethiopia, actually sort of over the last, I think almost 20 years probably now, um, shows very clearly how water availability and seasonality is kind of one of the sort of underlying factors of whether people have access to, wa to water services or not. And it came to a very sort of stark um, manifestation during the 2015-2016 El Nino drought where parts of the country, especially in the north and the east, were completely, um, you know, sort of people lost access 
to water completely. But what it also showed is that these are not areas that were particularly badly um, affected by the drought alone, but it was areas that struggle even in a normal year to access water um, for their daily needs. So what became very clear is that areas that already struggle because of a number of reasons, part of it is political neglect or, you know, kind of clear sort of focusing on, on easy to reach areas versus uh, much dif more difficult hydrogeologies to provide water. These areas were, of course, the ones that were hardest hit during the drought. And it was something like 9 million people in Ethiopia alone that were at the height of the drought. Water insecure, were dependent on, on water trucking. But again, a lot of areas are inaccessible in, in the Ethiopian highlands, and that meant that people had to migrate to areas where there was water. And that is, that is a, a, a key problem in terms of how water resources are, are distributed, how people then have access to those resources, and whether they are affected or not. And, and these are big questions in terms of increasing um, access and increasing, um, you know, sort of achieving the SDGs. And that also then relates to the question, what kind of solutions in a country like Ethiopia are available? If you are already in a difficult hydrogeology where people do not have easy access to, for example, groundwater, and it is an area with irregular and limited rainfalls where water harvesting is also problematic. How do you get water to people? And these are will require a lot of more sort of high-tech um, solutions, expensive solutions, but will Ethiopia have the financial means to do so? Are multi-village systems that rely on reliable sources that bring water, convey water across you know, kind of ravines and gorges up and down mountains, is that the way forward in, in a mountainous country like Ethiopia? And Ethiopia is not the only one. So big questions how to provide that water to, to these people in such a difficult geography. And, and that then also kind of brings us back to some of the questions around allocation, allocation across different users and users, countries that are striving to kind of get to middle-income status, whether that's Uganda, whether that is Ethiopia. There is a massive push for sort of industrialization, um, irrigation, large-scale irrigation, to produce either food for their own people or to produce um, goods such as sugar, which has a, a good value at the moment, or other sort of export crops. So a massive demand on water to go for the economic transformation process because that is sort of where a lot of countries are aiming to. Now, what does that mean in terms of water for people in both rural and urban areas? How are these big questions around allocation being resolved? Who, who has a say at the table? It was mentioned we do need multi-stakeholder fora, but will those poor women, will the elderly, will disabled people really be included in, in these questions around allocation or will we not end up again in a situation where the powerful kind of have the, the, the voice, they can sort of you know, make sure that the, the policy decisions 
are skewed in favor of their needs and not the needs of, of the people without the voice. And even the ones completely without the voice, environmental needs, which are key to be able to, in the future, provide the services. And if they are not taken into account at the moment, we will have massive issues and difficulties in future if we don't figure out how to ensure those environmental services over time. Thanks, Eva. Thanks for emphasizing the, uh, you know, some of the difficult questions that uh, higher levels of service provision pose in terms of um, trade-offs and competition between different uses and users, different scales, something um, that, uh, of course, Calist brought up. Right now, I think we should go straight into the um, the the, the Q and A. Um, at the end, I'll I'll give the, the the panelists one minute each just to sum up their thoughts from the from the day. But let's go over to your questions. We've got some good ones coming in online. Um, keep those coming. I'll try and weave them in um, as we go along. But let's start. Here in London, we've got a couple of people with microphones. So if you've got a question, keep it short and uh, neat, uh, and tell us first, um, you know, who you are and, and 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 where you're from, and we'll take two or three at a time. So let's go first over to the to the back. Um, hello, good morning. My name is Henry Northover. I'm from WaterAid. Um, thank you very much for a really interesting set of presentations. Um, I just wondered if I could ask the panelists to invite their reflections on this issue about the um, overlapping, interlocking nature of inequalities with broader dimensions. Um, and if I was to ask you to reflect on maybe just one or perhaps two um, policies uh, within the wash sector that are going to tackle uh, inequality in distribution of water and sanitation services, and maybe perhaps also um, outside of the wash sector, what would be your um, favorite policy responses in terms of uh, uh, tackling those, uh, that interlocking and overlapping nature of, of inequality in wash services? Thanks, Henry. Let's, let's, uh, let's take a, another one. So we have a call here for some practical suggestions in terms of addressing this sort of issue of multiple deprivations that we've heard about here. Um, let's go over here. Um, I forget, I haven't forgotten. Okay. Thank you. Um, um, I'm, I'm Michael Tudor. Um, I work for Pump Aid, very small NGO working mostly in Malawi. Um, uh, not only did no one mention climate change, no one also mentioned functionality. Um, and while uh, Malawi proudly boasted that it achieved its MDGs and uh, had 81% of its population with access to water, uh, WaterAid actually um, did a survey on behalf of DFID um, and discovered that functionality rates in rural Malawi were between 60 and 70%. And if you apply that to Malawi's 81% access, it actually drops to 57 um, To what degree did we actually achieve the uh, Millennium Development Goals? Okay. Good. The functionality word has come up. Thank you. Thank you for doing that because, of course, um, target setting is all very well, but you've got to keep your existing infrastructure and services going, and we know that that's um, a, a, a massive problem. So, 
let's take those two first, I think. Um, Callist, let's, let's bring you in, in terms of, because, you know, you're working at the coalface in, in Uganda. Let's take uh, the question on, you know, the practical policy responses from your side that you see as, as really having uh, an impact on, the, on these multiple deprivations that, 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 that we've heard about. You know, what are, what are you doing to address inequality in Uganda and it does it go beyond just wash uh, thank you very much Roger and uh, thanks to the person who raised the question I think Henry from water aid for Uganda we have of course recognized that uh, when you look at water we have traditionally looked at water for just drinking but as I think uh, uh, Eva mentioned as we try to move into middle-income status, we are trying to, move, uh, to progress on different fronts, and water is becoming very key in this regard. Micro irrigation, industrialization, right now in the country we are going in for oil and gas development and all of that. So we cannot just look at washing isolation. So one of the policy responses as a country has been to employ a catchment-based approach planning, development, and management of water and related resources. So, so when we go in the catchment, we are trying to look at how much water do we have overall. Underground water, groundwater. What are the demands, the current and future demands? And how do we respond to these demands in a holistic manner? But at the heart of that are the stakeholders. We are creating stakeholder coordination and engagement structures from the village level up to the national level so that they can provide inputs into what we are trying to do. And we are seeing good responses. We are already here leveraging capacities and resources, and we do believe that we are creating platforms for people to engage and bring in things that traditionally have not been discussed. But still, it's infancy, but it has promised to help us address these inequalities. Thank you. Calist, I mean, this may be something you want to come back to again, um, Oliver, um, in a moment. But let's, um, Chalufya, um, what is your response to this question about overlook, you know, the best way, the practical way, um, your experience in WaterAid of addressing these interlocking inequalities? And just if you can, pick up this question on on functionality. I mean, um, you know, how, how do you see things from a, from a Southern African uh, perspective? Yeah, thank you very much. I think both of those were really uh, good questions. So from this question, from the, the, the overlapping, the question around multiple overlaps to inequality. So if I use, if you will allow me to use a, a, an example from, from Zambia, or let's say Lusaka. So Zambia is landlocked. Um, we have lots of rivers, but Lusaka, the capital, doesn't sit on a lot of uh, groundwater. So we rely a lot on, on no surface water, but groundwater. Um, it's urbanizing very fast. So you have people living in slum areas that have close to no income to access or pay for water. So they're digging shallow wells. Um, what we have seen in the last six months to a year um, has been uh, enormous outbreaks of cholera because the city is has maybe 14% uh, coverage in terms of sewer. 
The rest of it is on-site sanitation, which is not properly managed. So you have a massive contamination of underground water. Uh, and a lot of that is happening in the urban slums where the majority of the poor live. So there's a, a whole range of inequality going on there, income, uh, geographic, uh, ETC. And the cholera burden in these locations has meant that people have lost incomes even more. Uh, they have lost children and families, of course, uh, breadwinners, etc. Um, the government's response, I know Henry asked for uh, what policy response might be my favorite. The one I will refer to is not particularly my favorite, but I think it's a, it's a start in terms of saying we have to um, look at the various things that affect people uh, and drive inequality further among uh, given populations and respond appropriately. So the government uh, of Zambia's response was to try and regulate groundwater abstraction by introducing um, something of a levy uh, on anyone that drills boreholes in the city to minimize the abstraction of groundwater. Uh, number one, it's not my, it wasn't particularly my favorite because it was, uh, uh, introduced in much more of a punitive as, as a punitive measure to minimize the extent to which um, private households and operators were abstracting groundwater, uh, but failed to do the thing that we were speaking about earlier. Look at the problem holistically. Understand the the various layers of um, uh, of inequalities that people are facing as a result of the limited water available in the city and the limited nature to which government has responded so far in ensuring that that access is made available. So that uh, regulating of uh, groundwater obstruction did one thing, but didn't address the problem in, in, um, as indeed we saw the cholera outbreak um, only months after that policy was passed. So I think my favorite policy would be one that took into account uh, more proactively uh, the issues around how do we manage our water service and ground? Uh, how do we ensure that people have access where they are sitting uh, in ways that are equitable? How do we ensure that, we, that the needs of each part of society are understood and that they are addressed, but also anticipating those needs, particularly in urban locations like Lusaka that I've used as an example, where, where population is growing rapidly and it's unplanned, but factoring in as well city plans that can uh, address that um, aspect of needing to be proactive. So that would be my favorite policy, Henry, but unfortunately I can't say that one exists at the moment that I could, <laughs> uh, that I could point to. Uh, in terms of functionality, that's... Let, um, let me just, sorry. Uh, let, let me just uh, stop you there for a moment because, I'm, I'm, yep. uh, because I want to bring some other people into the, into the discussion. Also, in particular, mm -hmm. a couple of questions we've got online. So I'm going to park you for the moment um, because I want to bring okay. I want to bring uh, some of the panelists here in as as well. We've got a couple of questions that you know uh, are, are, are obviously about the inequality thing. But I mean, maybe maybe for you, Tom, um, you know, could aiming for the safely managed uh, target that aspirational target, uh, which is, you know, on-plot supply, to take the drinking water one, um, actually pull money away from the provision of, of basic 
services. So the, the perverse effect is to increase inequalities, not to, not to reduce them. Any thoughts on that? That yeah. one coming from uh, one of our online contributors. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Um, I mean, uh, something which I think is interesting is, you know, the, the SDGs came from a more kind of hopeful time um, and uh, have a very strong focus on inequalities and recognize that inequality is a, is a structural issue and requires a, a transformative change in, in existing relationships. So the, the kind of logic behind them was that these aspirational global targets would then be localized and individual countries would set their own targets according to you know, whatever is the local context, locally available resources, and implicitly uh, priorities. And I, I think what we've seen, um, so you know, very often um, when we do missions to have these discussions with, with governments on the ground, the conversation is, well, what is your, you know, what is your situation for open navigation? You know, what remains to be done? Then where are we on basic services? And it's very rare, actually, that we get onto the safely managed component in, in many countries because there's still such a huge amount of work to do on achieving basic services. But at the same time, if we don't think ahead to drinking water quality and safe management of excreta, then we could well be storing up problems for the future. So I think um, even if it's not realistically achievable to get drinking water on premises uh, for the entire population, um, we should be thinking about, well, what is the target um, and for which populations and by when? And um, how does that then relate to other targets that we have for basic services that go beyond WASH? Um, so just to pick up on, on Henry's point, which I think is very interesting, um, clearly there's, a, there's a, a kind of a coordination in space and time issue in terms of the way in which different sectors work together. But there's also, I think, a, a sequencing issue. And um, we have got now gone beyond uh, monitoring WASH at the household level. And we're starting to look at, at WASH in schools and WASH in healthcare facilities and workplaces. And, and here we're seeing really quite shockingly low levels of coverage. Um, and it raises the question, you know, how do you expect to, to achieve improvements in educational outcomes? How do you expect to achieve um, improvements in health outcomes if you don't have the basic preventative health measures in place in the healthcare facility where your wife is trying to give birth? And I think these are also really important questions about the sort of interlocking nature of these inequalities. Yeah. Thinking about you know, getting the basics in place whether it's at the household level or in institutions, in order to provide that, that foundational platform to then uh, move on and, and achieve um, more ambitious things. And what about, I mean, just, uh, just very briefly, Tom, this issue, I mean, so it was something that Chilufia brought up. Plans, budgets, and joint sector reviews should address inequality. So, you know, this idea of sort of mainstreaming it into the formal <laughs> processes yeah. Um, is that something UNICEF is, is promoting? This was, this was one of our online questions. Yeah, very much. I mean, I think that in many countries you have a, an existing platform, a joint sector review that brings together uh, the, the stakeholders, whether they're government or donors or NGOs and, and others. Um, I think that's a, a great starting point to discuss the targets and ideally not just what is your target for different services, but do you have an explicit target to reduce inequalities? which is much rarer in, in a lot of these um, 
situations. But I think as Chalufia was, was um, highlighting, you need to then go beyond that because there are individuals and groups who are very unlikely to be part of that discussion. And so you have to think about a different mechanism in order to bring them in. Um, this idea of a, of a participatory review, which would help to identify those disadvantaged groups that are not appearing in your national statistics, but everybody knows are disadvantaged, and then figuring out a way in which uh, to bring them into the discussion, to have a conversation about how uh, we address their needs, whether they're women and girls, people living with disabilities, indigenous groups. I mean, the, these are highly context-specific types of, of conversations that, that need to happen. And very often those would uh, be outside of the formal joint sector review process. So we think we need to have a bit of both. Yeah, all right, fantastic. Now over to uh, our audience again. Uh, yes, this gentleman over here, we missed you out earlier before you kick off. Anything over from, from this side of the room? Any, any, any questions you're dying to get out as the clock ticks? Oh no. No? Okay, well, let's stick to this one, yet, yeah, and Thank you. Um, possibly add one of my own. So who are you? I'm Tim Hayward from WhatsApp. Um, I think my question is aimed mainly at, uh, I guess, towards Tom, or it would be interesting to he hear your response, that the JMP statistics, as they are often discussed and quoted, actually hide the real nature of the crisis. Um, and I'm referring to the split between rural and urban, and it's very easy, and you put the figures yourself up on the screen, which showed that um, generally urban coverage is much, much better than, than rural. But the direction of, 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 of travel here is we all know that the population of Africa is set to double in the next 30 years, but actually the urban population will triple and the rural population will stay the same. So when you add on top of that, the huge inequality there is within the urban areas that and city like Nairobi and a half of the population live in the slums and that there's a massive difference in between the, the levels of service available um, you know, to, for, for the middle and upper income country uh, consumers as compared to the, 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 those living in the slums. That those simple statistics hide the fact that where the real crisis is, is in the um, low income uh, informal areas, not just of the big cities, but the small towns and the, 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 the rural uh, developing towns. Why don't we pick that one up? I mean, maybe Oliver, um, uh, you would like to, to, to come to that because, you know, this is a big public health issue. Densely populated urban areas, informal settlements, very little waste, safely managed, disposed of, treated, whatever. Mixing with drinking water, you know, groundwater as a source of drinking water, self-supply and a receptor of waste, you know, it's a and these very rapidly growing smaller towns where urban growth is, is focused predominantly. What are your thoughts mm. on that? Uh, so I have some thoughts on this, which, are, which, are, which I'll share, but I, <laughs> maybe you want to put the JMP on the spot, but maybe you can come back to that. Um, I th one thing I would say is there, there, there's, a, there's a chapter here that was led by uh, Gordon McGranahan uh, with sort of various, various of his um, colleagues from Tanzania called how international water and sanitation monitoring fails deprived urban dwellers. And I, I think that, that, that chapter is very interesting because it, it makes exactly uh, this, the, this point that the, 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 the impression that sometimes is taken away from the joint monitoring program, not one that I would argue the joint monitoring program itself project, but 
one of the messages which is taken away is that we're doing much, much better in urban than we are in, in rural. Um, and in fact, as you've said, looking forward, the problems are likely to only get worse. But I would also say that the problems as they, as they currently stand are not per se much better than, than rural because the statistics that we're comparing suggest that needs are equal between low density rural areas and high density urban areas. So I would argue that the importance of safe excreta management in a informal settlement uh, with a population density of over 50,000 people per square kilometre is much, much more important, plausibly, than an area where population density could be 100 or let's say you know, below 10,000 people per, per square kilometre. And that's, I mean, that's logical and, and plausible. The, the, the one thing which I, I would flag from a public health perspective is that 20 years ago, in terms of global health, the global health literature, it was very clear that uh, an individual's prospects living in a low-income country urban uh, area were much better than um, uh, uh, their counterparts living in rural areas. So generally, people who were living in urban areas had, had, had um, uh, sort of better, um, uh, higher income, uh, better ac access to education, better access to healthcare. Th those statistics are, are changing. And if you use the lens, for example, of undernutrition, we're starting to see very startling uh, levels of uh, undernutrition and infectious disease burden in urban areas where traditionally we, we, we didn't. And this is somewhat reminiscent, uh, for me at least, of the, the development story in many high-income countries where initially that first wave of urbanisation was actually associated with a, 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 a huge decline in public health because moving to the urban environment was very much a trade-off between uh, improved economic opportunities, but uh, much diminished uh, public health um, uh, uh, status. Um, so I, I think, sort of, in summary, Pim, I think this is really, really important. I think the JMP actually does provide us useful statistics that allow us to start thinking about, about this. The fact that we see stagnation in many uh, low middle income countries in terms of coverage so it's not it's not it's not changing because we're unable as I think Tom said to manage this huge sort of migration to urban areas but from a public or environmental health perspective I would say the need is often greater in these populations so we certainly to answer the other question about safely managed and creating disincentives for progress on basic we absolutely in an urban environment do need to be talking about safely managed uh, sanitation because frankly uh, many basic sanitation technologies uh, are unlikely to be to be safe from a from a public health perspective in those environments. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Um, now, before I bring in um, Eva, uh, perhaps, and also Chilifia, any uh, questions from our audience here? I'm also scanning online. I know we've got a couple more. Nope. In which case. Um, let me have a look at, at, at some of these online questions. I mean, we have one on financing, um, not surprisingly. Uh, and I know there are a couple of chapters in the, in, in, in the book that deal with this, you know, the cost implications in kind of aggregate terms of, of, of the ambition. 
but as you know, the big questions around, well, you know, who? Who's going to pay? What, what's the distribution of payment? What does it, what does it look like between uh, tariffs and subsidies and taxes and so on? Um, so let's go to, uh, I mean, Chalufya, what are, you know, in your advocacy work here, um, you know, what, what, kind of, what kind of conversations are you having with government uh, about this, about the, uh, on the financing question? Right. Thank you very much. So I think, um, yeah, that's the one conversation we want to have quite frequently because financing is an essential is an essential tool for implementing the kinds of things that we would like to see implemented to tackle inequality as well as improved access. So the things we are discussing, number one, is that we are saying we would like to see that governments set aside their own money initially to finance uh, access to water and sanitation. Um, and where aid is available, that it should be applied and used appropriately. And the third thing is increasing the capacity to absorb the resources that are made available. So uh, uh, the majority of the time we find that water and sanitation budgets do not increase. Um, and the basic argument is, well, the sector minister, ministries ha, are not able to absorb the money anyway. Um, so how can that be when we have so many people not accessing water and sanitation to the level we would like that, that, that budgets are not being absorbed? So it's a big question around capacity. Do we have the, the right level of resources uh, in the places where it should be so that when the financing is available that it can be absorbed? But even with that said, we still do need a lot more investment from governments, as well as governments uh, thinking about innovative ways to uh, tap into private sector money, as well as other sources of, of fund financing to ensure that we can meet the gap, because the gaps are quite huge. Let's also hear about that from uh, Kalist. I mean, um, how do those conversations go in Uganda? Are you, are you uh, lobbying hard for extra money? Um, to try and meet SDG aspirations? Are you, you know, is the conversation changing? Um, or do you just have to take uh, what you get in a water ministry that plays second fiddle to some of the more powerful ones? How is it? Oh, thank you very much. Certainly these discussions are ongoing because uh, we see coverage not increasing substantially every year. So we are again robbing government to put in more money. But one of the challenges, of course, uh, we have been faced with is uh, there are many demands on government resources. So we are being challenged to justify how important we are, the contribution of water, sanitation, and hygiene services to the growth of the country, to the economy. In Uganda, we did, uh, last year, we did a study, an economic study, we try to quantify the economic contribution of water and environmental services to the economy. And we do not, we noted that if government invests in water and uh, uh, environment services, the economy would be able to grow by about 9%. Also noted that that contribution, about 51% would come from provision of water and, and sanitation services 
while 49% would come from management of water and environmental resources. So right now we are talking about numbers and the Ministry of Finance is listening. I think one of the things we have not done and I think which we need to focus on is we need to talk about numbers. Sometimes we think we are important, but many other sectors are equally important. And we are being told, can you clearly justify to an economist, to a politician, how important you are? And if you don't get funds, what will happen? the growth of the country. So we are doing that. We are also looking at uh, innovating finance, uh, innovative financing sources. We are looking at funding from the private sector. We are also trying really to leverage resources from also the civil society and have these integrated approaches to deliver of services. We do believe that we can save a lot of money by working together. We see a lot of duplication. An NGO is doing work here, a government is doing work here, another government ministry is doing work here. So we are trying to integrate our planning so that we can leverage the available resources and do more with what we have. Thanks, Kalist. Um, now, before I bring Eva uh, in, I keep saying that, I, I'm fine. not leaving you out. But um, yeah, we have a question over here on the left, if we can get a microphone. So just uh, yeah, just tell us who you are and where you're from, and then off you go. Hi, thank you for that. Um, my name is Priya, and I'm also from WaterAid. And my question is on disaggregation of the data to understand more of actually who is uh, missing out and and for what reasons and what their shared characteristics are. How, Dr. Kali said that in Uganda they're aiming by mid. 2019 to have a baseline and I wonder what the challenges are that they are experiencing in actually disaggregating that data and getting real quality information and consistent across the country and maybe also to Tom what are the biggest challenges we're facing in the wash sector globally in getting this disaggregated and disaggregated data and what do we need to do more of in order to have it um, of sufficient quality. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before I... Uh, Kallis, that may be something you want to just uh, put in your head to come back to when I give all the panellists their your, your one-minute um, final fling, if you like. Uh, Tom, um, also. Um, I just think we've probably got time for winter... Very fancy, into the orange zone here on the monitor over there. So we've got a, we've got a couple of minutes to play. Let's just see if we've got another question from the audience here. Uh, no, okay, let me just check on here. Um, but I am going to go back to you, Eva. Let, let me just park that for the, for the, for the, for the moment. Um, you know, integrated approaches, Eva, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work on trying to, uh, uh, you know, sort of break down the silos a little bit and, and so that wash delivery uh, also considers issues of wider catchment management, the kind of things that uh, Kaliste, um, uh spoke about in, in Uganda. But people like you and I are always banging on about integrated approaches and holistic this and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, drawing on your rich experience, how do you convince people that it's worth doing. Uh, maybe there's a lesson here from Callist. He, he, yeah. put, he put dollar signs exactly. on wash outcomes. Is that, is that where we should, you know, it's do we need, still need to be doing that? 
Yes, I think we still need to be doing that. And even though the, the, the business case for WASH is kind of made, you know, we do know what roughly the costs are of a lost life, what the costs are of, of, of someone being ill, what it means in terms of lost ability to earn an income because care responsibility. So in a way, these costings have been made, but probably they have stayed too much within the sector or too much within the academic world and still not out there in, in kind of in force and, and not known by the ones who actually make the decisions. I'm sure within the Ministry of, of Water that is responsible for planning WASH, um, the numbers are known. Within the health sector, the numbers are known. But within the Ministry of Finance and Economic Development, do the people who really make the decisions have access to that information and know what it costs to be ill, what it costs to not have access to water for either domestic or productive use at the household level, what it means if, if, if you live in a slum and don't have access to, to sanitation and hygiene. So I think we need to raise the, the profile, not within the sector, because the sector knows the issues, also not within sort of um, neighboring sectors such as health, but we need to go and convince the Ministry of Economic Development and Finance about the, the importance of water, but not just water supply and sanitation, but also what it means in terms of managing the resources on which that water um, depends, and then conversely, sort of flip side of the cone, yeah. managing the pollution, which comes part from the, the, you know, the domestic side, but increasingly in, in Africa and in Asia, um, from the industrial side and the agricultural side that then undermines the ability to provide safe water. So we need that integrated approach and for that we need to go to, to the highest level and that is we have Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Economic Development, Prime Minister's Office to make the point. Thanks Eva, yeah, yeah, something we've, we've tried to do on, on occasion. Uh, right, I'm going to go back to uh, Thank you for those questions and thank you those uh, online. Sorry we didn't manage to cover all of them. I'm trying to get the balance right here. Uh, but many thanks for, for contributing. I'm going to go to each in the, in the order we started. So I'm going to start with Tom and maybe you'd like to squeeze in um, to address Priya. Was it Priya? Uh, Priya's question in your, in your one minute. You know, give, us a, give us a thought or two thoughts uh, as we go around the panellists. One minute each. Over to you, Tom. Okay, that's quite a challenge in, yeah. in one minute, uh, Roger. But um, as I said, I think there's there's a, a need to you know localize these targets and to and to ground them um, in local context. Um, and while we're clear that you know the benefits of investing in wash outweigh the costs in almost all cases, as as clearly illustrated, there are some real choices to be made about you know where you invest, how you invest. Are you investing in sewer systems or on-site sanitation systems? And who is going to pay for those? Um, are they primarily coming from government or, or, or coming from the users or some progressive form of, of, of cross-subsidy, which I think is a really important national-level conversation. And the answers will be different. There's no, there's no blueprint. Um, but there should be built into those some explicit targets for reducing inequality. It should be possible to say not only you know, the rising tide will lift all boats, but that we will at the same time seek to reduce 
inequalities, whether they're rural urban or within urban or um, other types of inequalities. Um, one of the things you need there is good data. Um, so as Priya said, um, there's a lot of work to do still to uh, collect high quality data, disaggregated data on the resource base. We don't know nearly enough about the resource base, um, as Rogers pointed out in his chapter, but also on service levels. And once we get into inequalities in service levels, we start to see some really interesting pictures. It's no longer the old rural-urban divide. There's lots of complexity within that. Um, but the last point that I really want to emphasize, uh, coming back to something that Chilufia mentioned, I think, is this concept of uh, a participatory review, um, which will look different in each context, but it seems to me to be very important in order to get beyond whatever data you have in the national data system, which is ultimately what we use for global monitoring, and to start to drill down and understand um, those groups who are too small to appear in the national statistics and the global statistics, but ultimately are going to need to be um, a major focus if we're going to achieve universal access in the next 15 years. Thanks, Tom. I'm going to go, Khalees, now you've got, you know, you've got your one minute. Final thoughts. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. My, my final thought really is uh, SDGs are providing us a big opportunity to address issues of inequality. I think for the first time we're having an agenda that has been determined at the highest level possible, so we have all the support that is needed. But also requires work to be done at the lowest level, and the engagement of all the different players is key. Our piloting of the SDG 6 indicators noted that you can actually leverage capacities and resources by bringing the nine traditional stakeholders on the table. They have a lot of wealth of knowledge. They even have some of the data we think is not available. Of course, the quality of the data is one thing, but sometimes you may not know that data is available unless you open up space to the others. So we need stakeholder coordination and participation frameworks so that the civil society, the cultural institution, the religious institutions, academia, government agencies, private sector talk together, and this has to be from the lowest level up to the highest level, and through that we'll be able to communicate beyond the water sector. And I think, as Eva mentioned, we have talked for long to ourselves, we need to talk to the others outside the sector. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kalist. And, uh, uh Chilufia, uh, you're still there. Haven't rushed off to your plane yet. I don't want to make you miss your plane, but you know, here's your minute, your turn. What are your final thoughts? Thank you, thank you. So I, I maybe two final thoughts. The one related to the question on functionality, because I think it's an important indicator of sustainability of the services that uh, we are speaking about. Uh, I, I think. Yeah. The indicators around functionality and the poor performance of the sector uh, up to this point are really good reminders for us to think about the nature and quality of the service delivery that is currently available. Uh, is it of a standard that a person who might be a woman, elderly, but also disabled can access? Does it have uh, the ability to last for a good enough time for the community to actually benefit and not become a burden? So all the questions around the technologies that are being selected, are they 
uh, looking into the future and understanding the growth uh, of particular communities and the needs as they as they shift um, and so on. But there's also a big piece around monitoring uh, that functionality as an indication of how sustainable uh, access will be into the future. And so at WaterAid, we have done a few things like uh, support water point mapping to understand uh, how, uh, who is accessing what, where, when does it break down, how quickly, what is the response time, and those sorts of things. And I know that many other actors are supporting those kinds of efforts. Uh, increasingly, the same kinds of things being used for sanitation facilities as well. How do we know uh, how many sanitation facilities are available? When are they functional? What needs to? When do they need repair? And who is responsible? So I think those are key uh, tools available to us that we should keep building on to ensure equitable access and that uh, and that people are actually served when they need to. The last point for me is that in sub-Saharan Africa, the big narrative is of growth now is around mm -hmm. ensuring we have economic growth, um, and somewhere in there will be your human development. So I think that the good thing is that we know that access to water uh, as well as sanitation sits squarely in the economic development and human development discussion. And so you can't ignore it in both of those. And, and it gives us a real good opportunity to engage quite proactively um, in ways that will enable us meet the sustainable development goals, bringing all actors along, whether they be business or governments or individuals, because they can see themselves in that whole discourse. Thank you. Thank you, Chilifia. And if you need to rush off, then 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 do go. If you if you can stay around for a minute or two, then then please. Uh, Oliver, your 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 one minute. Okay. Uh, yeah, so 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 three points. I, I would say limit ambition at your peril. There's been a discussion we've touched on here about whether the STG is the safely managed is too am, too ambitious. Um, I I I think there are huge risks in trying to reduce. The level of ambition at the uh, at, at the international uh, level. Uh, secondly, I think we, which I think speaks to Priya's point, the the data uh, with accountability mechanisms is really really important, and it doesn't cost a great deal. Simple disaggregation of data can be very powerful. I'm still struck that the JMP's disaggregation by wealth quintile and their comparison between India and Bangladesh 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, uh, I, you know, had such a powerful impact in the way that people uh, viewed the JMP uh, uh, data and the differences that we that were sort of laid bare in, uh, uh, between 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 countries. So I, I do think we can do a lot with with simple data and holding people's feet to the um, to the fire uh, on that. My my last point, which I think picks up on this this issue about you know growth being uh, not not just in, in in Africa but in many parts of uh, the world. Uh, the sort of key uh, key political agenda, and although it pains me to to say this, because I would I'd like to believe that public health would be the best way to to make the case for for these investments. But I think one thing we can learn uh, from the the discipline of economics is the the, the value of the human capital uh, argument. Um, uh, if if governments are ambitious and committed to a growth agenda. You cannot, you cannot achieve economic growth without investing in, 
in people and in your human capital. Ultimately, that is what drives uh, 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 economies uh, forward. And water, sanitation, hygiene, as we are increasingly uh, uh, aware through new evidence, uh, impacts profoundly on human capital uh, through traditional health uh, outcomes, but also in terms of growth and development, even cognitive uh, uh, development, and then future economic uh, productivity. So I would, I would make a case for human capital. Yeah, and growth that benefits everyone, not just small sections, a big topic here at ODI. Eva? Yeah, um, I think the last decade has been sort of the decade where everyone was talking about resilience. And I think we need to move on and come back to actually a very old concept, sustainability. And, and that kind of speaks a little bit to what you just said, um, Oliver, in terms of growth, but what kind of growth? We need to have growth that makes sense environmentally. If we need, you know, we need to preserve the resources, we have to provide the, the services we depend on. Um, but we also need to, to have achieve a, a growth path that is socially um, acceptable and equitable. And I think going back to the old concept of, of sustainability unearths some of the thinking from the, the 80s and 90s around how do we define sustainability? Who is or who are the people who define what a sustainable path is to transform, to change, to achieve a goal would kind of help us quite a bit in, in finding some of those balances um, which we need to find in future because the, the demands get larger. Um, the, the supply kind of largely remains the same when it comes to natural resources. There is a huge untapped gap in terms of human um, capital, definitely. But we need to kind of re revisit some of the thinking and, and political sort of capital of, of the sustainability debate when, when it comes to, to the SDGs. Thanks, Eva. Uh, right, well, uh, and, and thank you for the, to the audiovisual audio people here for letting us run slightly over. But it was a good discussion. Um, and I didn't want to, to, to cut too many people off, but we had a lot of contributors, some good questions. So uh, to wrap up, I mean, first, uh, just, to, just to thank the, the panel members, uh, Tom, uh, Oliver, Eva here in London, but uh, also, of course, those uh, joining from far-flung places. So Kalist and uh, Chalufya, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, for joining and for your great uh, contributions. Obviously, thank you for the audience, both here in London and uh, joining online. We got some uh, great questions. Um, I think we have uh, the book looks like this. Um, fantastic Christmas present. I shall certainly be buying one for my <laughs> wife, which would be absolutely delighted. Uh, but look, let me just uh, uh, stop by saying... Um, Thank you for all, 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 thank you for coming. And um, if you're going to have a holiday in the next few weeks, then I hope it's a, a good one. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.